Hey, everybody. Thank you for coming back and joining us on the 3DOP podcast. I am super excited to welcome Kylie Williams to to join us this, well, this morning for me and this afternoon for you uh, over over in Melbourne. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, we we did manage to meet uh, as I fa- fanboyed you a little bit at uh, the podiatry conference and called you the wrong name. So I'm pretty, pretty impressed you still wanted to come on and talk to me uh, after that. Um, so Kylie, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your background and tell, tell us kind of briefly kind of what you did uh, to get to where you are now. So describe yep. your role, describe your roles and, and, and where you are now. <laughs> Easy. I Easy wear no. <laughs> all good. And thank you. Um, thank you for asking me to come and chat. I love talking about clinical matters. I especially love talking about toe walking. Um, my background is I'm a podiatrist. I have worked in pediatric practice for over 20 years, um, over more than 20 years. Um, I have worked in hospitals and health services, so community-based health services, which are equivalent to some of the NHS community-based health services. Uh, I work in private practice now for a very, very small um, number of hours per week. I'm predominantly at Monash University here in Melbourne where I have a teaching and research role. So first of all, as the course coordinator of the new um, podiatry uh, course here, being established here at Monash University, but I also am an active researcher in children's lower limb conditions and allied health models of care. Is that something you've been kind of building towards, like where your career has, obviously you started NHS and then you kind of went kind of, to the private practice side and then with some research and the research side's kind of grown and obviously if you just said like the uh, the course is really new and you're kind of part of that uh, is, is that happened I mean a lot of these things do happen randomly um but is that kind of how, how it's gone it's just at that opportunity where the course came at the time when you were doing some research and was yeah. that a difficult, difficult decision to jump out of private practice sort of like almost completely oh, yeah I um I I've worked clinically for a very long time and I love being a clinician I I've always um loved being one-on-one supporting families and working in teams so in peds we don't do life alone we don't do health alone um so especially in pediatrics family-based care is about the family and the other health professionals. So that was always something really important to me. I did my PhD about 10 years ago after uh, 20 years of practice and kind of went, oh, there might be something more to that. And because I'd worked in management by that stage, um, the management side of PhD things came a little bit easier. And so I transitioned into, I guess, allied health research leadership roles and worked in a hospital outside of clinical practice in leadership roles. And with that came funding and grants. And um, I was very fortunate to be highly supported by um, research mentors and have some pretty big grants behind me now. And here we are. And, and Okay, so that makes sense. So when, when you did your PhD, that was when the, the, the toe walking uh, yeah. interest started. Um, and, and then since then, it's kind of been a bit of a a snowball effect has it? it it has as a clinician i've been absolutely obsessed 
about idiopathic toe walking in particular Mm -hmm. since I was a new graduate. And I didn't realise I was so obsessed until I started my PhD. Um, Colleagues have reminded me that I've presented about it at conferences. And even as a new grad, I ran a case study many, many moons ago about this random condition that had presented in clinical practice and I had no idea what to do with it and that I observed a few of these unique characteristics that um, the child I'd been seeing um, with toe walking had that didn't align with toe walking from, say, cerebral palsy or toe walking associated with autism or toe walking that may have been associated with a neuromuscular condition. And so um while the the PhD was kind of the 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 big thing that took yeah. me over the edge into actually having some science behind me, as a clinician, it's probably been a condition that has frustrated me for a very long period of time because I see the frustration in the families have being yeah. bounced yeah. around, people are telling them all sorts of different things and yeah, I totally get that from from just thinking there when, when you're describing that of when I've probably first see it in clinic and you're like, I've no idea what to do with this or what it is. Um and yeah, everyone's kind of looking confused and scratching their heads and then if they're getting that answer and, and other answers of like from other health professionals, then it's not yet that experience for parents is probably a little bit frightening. Um and, and kind of and I guess with, when we all have something wrong with us or something that's different, you kind of want to have a kind of understanding of, of what it is and giving people that understanding, even if it doesn't mean, you know, diving straight into an obvious treatment, then it's, mm. uh, it can be really, really just a little bit of relief for them. And then you can, they can have that reassurance from us as professionals to, uh, to kind of think it'll be okay. We've got, we, we've got, a, we've got a better understanding of this now. And, mm. Yeah, thanks to thanks to you and uh, all, all your work you've been doing. Oh, well, that's where you, you're known for it then, so you can't get away from it. Uh, it's one of those challenges. I, I've got a son who toe walks and who has idiopathic toe walking, um, and he's 20, and he has great ankle range of motion, and I'm really proud of that. He plays basketball. He's represented a he, – he's um, gone to other countries and participated sport in other countries. He still toe walks. Yeah. And I always know when he's super stressed, when he's really tired, when he's been out with his mates, when there's a lot on his mind and mm-hmm. I watch him at six foot, almost six foot five, toe walk across the the um, the, the room and it's kind of like, oh, man, I, I feel quite secure in the fact that we did everything we could do. I didn't mm-hmm. therapy him too much. Mm-hmm. However... <laughs> That, uh, we'll take your word for it. Yep. <laughs> yes, please take my word for it. Mm-hmm. However, um, it's still part of who he is and yeah. and we've kind of accepted and that's been a big growth for me as a as a parent, yeah. but also as a as a health professional, the world saw it fit to give me my own N equals one. And so I've got to kind of play alongside that N equals one and see what it's like as a parent on the other side, but also the challenge of being a health professional when nothing works. Um, did you did you find like because of that personal experience that you you used that in clinic a little bit to kind of reassure uh, people 
Or do you think that's a good or a bad thing to do? To yeah, do? I, I do think it's a double-edged sword. I think you can bring too much of yourself. Um, my journey is my journey with my family and not every family's journey is the same. Some yeah. parents, I think a little bit of knowledge is sometimes awesome, but sometimes it's too much. Mm-hmm. And so there's probably some families I've shared that with and some families I would never dream of share. And I think that's just um, the same as bringing the parent to the or the whole person mm-hmm. to the, the the clinical consultation where you're sitting there with another family, how mm-hmm. much you bring of yourself is a yeah. really hard thing to know how yeah. much to bring in. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that from multiple angles, and I think it's something I do, and I think maybe I need to not do that as much. <laughs> <laughs> not not in the tool walking sense, but in uh, <laughs> in the sense of like our like. MSK yeah. issues and you think oh yeah I've been there and you think you can probably more from a reassuring fact mm-hmm. of maybe for myself I can say okay I've seen this before or yeah, yeah. anyway we digress <laughs> and and I guess then what when 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 someone presents in in clinic and they're they, they've got they're, they're, they're say idiopathic to walk and so you've narrowed it down slightly uh mm-hmm. to, to that category uh, what what does your your first first appointment look like? Um, on the basics, not I know yeah, you have yeah, you yeah, have a million, yeah, like, a million different cool. angles, but, but like <laughs> it, and it is it's it's really that spectrum of it, what it might look like for some kids is confirming mm-hmm. that we really don't have anything on board because um, when we when we really see a lot of kids with idiopathic toe walking and when we look at the evidence. A lot of kids do grow out of it. Yeah. They really, they really get better with time. Um, most will get better by three. Some may toe walk less by about five, six, or seven. Um, and so, if you're getting this younger child who walks in, they're toe walking. You might be reconfirming the diagnosis, and that mm-hmm. might be making sure there's no new neuro signs, mm-hmm. that there's no change in continence, that there's that they're socially okay, they're kind of kicking goals at school, they're developing friendships. And then you come alongside of, hey, does anything hurt? Um, Mm. Is there any then functional limitations? So are we starting to see ankle range changes, um, change in in length and strength of any of the muscles? So I guess, sorry, I was was going to say, I can understand that your questioning, which comes from your tool walking tool, which it's definitely available online because my wife printed it off for me. <laughs> She's like, you need to you need to talk about this. Um, and uh, and and a couple of the categories like you you've touched on there are are looking around that idea of potentially if I'm reading into this correctly, like potentially autism or the the tethered cord uh, uh, kind of idea with the continents, so people can be be aware that that is you know a red a red flag. Um, yeah. And then kind of going into the more MSK side of it, then when you say like, when you see, I guess what's interesting in terms of perhaps where we as podiatrists and orthotists may get involved might be when it, when tightening is beginning to occur. Like what, what I kind of, I have a, I know what kind of some of the pathways look like in the UK, but what would your kind of view on, view on that be if you're starting to see, We'll call it mild, some mild tightness rather through numbers at it because yeah. that's like that's that's obviously quite difficult to do. But if, if, if... Uh, no, but it, it comes into that whole um you've made sure there's no red flags. 
So no one else needs to be involved. You're really, really comfortable. You're sitting there with a child who doesn't have any medical reasons and they're pretty happy and healthy and life's just wonderful. And they're not being teased is another thing because kids can be jerks. Um, Not all (laughs) kids. A lot of kids are amazing, but there's a small group of kids that can be a little bit jerk and is that socially impacting the, the child. And then you kind of fall into these categories of these kids that are being impacted and they may be able, they may be struggling to keep up with other kids. So we might have some strength challenges. We might see a little bit of um, because of tightness. So this early, early forms of um, functional impact mm-hmm. with a body change because of their toe walking. Um, some early treatments that we might consider is um, I'm not a huge fan of exercises. Um, they, they just place so much more burden on the on the family. And if you've got your own kids and someone puts one extra layer on you, you just want to hate on them. So if you can... You feel like giving exercises that you're like, this is going to be absolutely impossible. Like, yeah. And so working out what the child likes to do, can do you like to ride your bike? Great. Let's put your seat up a bit. Do you like to go on bushwalks and hikes and everything? Great. Let's schedule that as your as your exercising. Can you make sure you walk up and down a few more hills? Can you do you like martial arts? Australia, we love sport. I don't, but most um I can Aussie rules up up here. Yep. Um, how can we build exercise around your child's interests? Gymnastics, dancing. I prefer tap dancing over ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, can we do personal preference? Um, yeah. Well, if you think about it, tap dancing uses anterior muscle strength. Can we build a dance type into what your child loves that will actually use the muscles that we're struggling with a little bit? Yeah. Martial arts is an absolute favourite. Find a non-yelly club that doesn't want to compete. Um, so lifestyle martial arts, you generally are looking at body um, positioning, long positions held with their heels on the ground, and they've got to centre their gravity to be able to kick and move. Is that what kind of pushes at the fact that to, to, to lift one leg and kick that you have yeah. to do the other? Okay. Otherwise you fall over. So just That's see. clever. You have to you have to kind of do things in a certain way to look success success looks different for every child, but there's a couple of little elements that they will succeed in. And most non-yelly, non-competitive clubs are really keen on the kids actually progressing at their own pace. So mm-hmm. there's no competition or pressure to be exactly the same as the kid next to you, as long as you are getting getting better. So building in something a child what yeah. Likes it, to yeah, do. I was going to say, yeah, if they can get some enjoyment from it too, it's a yeah. win-win. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an excuse to try some some new stuff out that you maybe wouldn't yep. have taken on to in the first place. So that's clever. And, I like that. And so I guess sometimes with some kids might um, get them into a firmer sole shoe so mm-hmm. or even a boot, so something that crosses the ankle and restricts some of the ankle movement. They probably will still toe walk in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. May consider a afternoon splint rather than a night splint. So if they're coming home, yeah, having a bit of TV time, having a bit of iPad time, long leg sit with a um, some sort of um, splint. Uh, I mean, I mean that the concept of an of, a, of an I like the name afternoon splint. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that and use that <laughs> uh, because the, you still see now and again like people come in and say I've had a had a night splint just 
can win at night time. And you think, yeah, that makes sense because I don't think anyone could really sleep comfortably with a with a night like sleeping with us being mm. stretched while they're trying to sleep. I mean, that's probably counterproductive. Um, Some people will, but it's a it's an important question to ask. So asking about sleep hygiene. So if I'm if I'm wondering what's your sleep like? We we've just finished finished a research project where um what we what we found and yes it was a small group it was about 20 kids we stuck actigraphs on them we found that they moved far more than than their peers so okay. the non-toe walking peers so their movement was high which kind of tells us for us to counter a movement pattern we need to give them way more than what we actually think if if they're moving lots we need to counter any of our treatment with lots but we also found that it took that most of them didn't get enough sleep um so they they um talked about struggling once they got to sleep they were fine but they uh, they they struggled to to get to sleep and so sometimes just asking if you're going to use anything for night for these kids actually considering hey does it does it take you a while to get to sleep or are you the minute you hit hit the pillow you you're gone yeah um because then they're the that might tempt you into the afternoon splints or yeah. you may even move into the softer um, I've just started using turtle braces and I'm oh, I probably shouldn't say the name of things. <laughs> Actually, I don't I don't <laughs> think we'll be breaking it with it with, with our worldwide presence on our podcast. Yeah, but, um, I just started I, and jury's still out, but they're softer. Okay. And I do wonder whether we'll get some some um I reckon the kids might like them if I can get them. Yeah, they're they're kind of an aquaplast type splint, but yeah, they've I'm got just, a yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to oh I I'm trying to yeah. see where they are, but I think and I found they, the wrong they zip, thing. They zip on and off. So the kids can walk in them. Um, if we, they're, they're kind of like a cereal cast, but it's a removable cereal cast. I think they're less bulky and they're less likely that often you, you um, any of you, your um, night splints, if they hit together, they kind of go clunk and they'll wake you up. So some kids will sleep with the splint on one foot and mm-hmm. swap it. Next okay. night and they'll yeah, alternate, yeah. but you're right. The sleeping in something like that is is really uncomfortable, and they tend to curl up. Yeah. And then yeah, then it's negated. <laughs> so yeah, because I, I know Sally, the treatments in the past that I've I've seen, I haven't seen them for a while, but we would get orthotic footwear, and then someone put a carbon sole plate in this orthotic footwear, and then you'd also get a, a heel retaining strap, but this extra one that was added in there. Ever seen one of those? No. Uh, well, like basically like another strap but it's just like crack that up and keep that heel oh. in yeah it's well, it. there's, half the things that we do with kids we need to really consider or I think we need to consider the impact on the the family like how much time does it take to put these things on in the yeah. morning based on the benefit that we're going to get. So I, I do tend to use carbon fibre plates in yeah. in shoes, but mm-hmm. I tend to use one with a, a moulded um, molded arch support. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one that we've used in a research study. We, sh- we um, paired it with a Nike Air Force One, so yeah. shoes that yeah, yeah. look really yeah. awesome. And, 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 and they've got such good characteristics at Nike Air Force One. I have owned a couple of pairs of them yep. in my youth. Yep. Um, and, and, and you're right <laughs> clinically when you say to people oh you, the night care force ones are good shoes they're like 
like mum and dad, I need like three new pairs of those in all yeah, the new colours yeah. and they're super happy to uh and and the um at the moment, depending on what size you are, you can actually customize them. So I've got a couple of kids that toe walk and have autism and mm-hmm. have quite specific color diets. Okay. It's awful. And if we don't get a shoe in their color diet, we're stuffed. We won't get right. any where okay. there is no way. And having that ability to customize something with particular features. Mm-hmm is just phenomenal it is a new way of thinking of of client preferences and being able to match a treatment for a medical reason like we can actually it's this is really what person-centered care is about being able to match things that um have as limited impact on the family as we can and if you find something the child will actively engage with mm-hmm. it makes your treatment so much easier yeah are we talking though could i just this me thinking about the smaller detail with the Air Force ones. Do you tend to go for the standard version or they do they did do you I don't see they're not as often, but the mid the mid tops or the high top versions? Mid high tops are getting harder and harder and harder to find. I think the high tops are the best, but they're super hard to find and they're super hard to get on. The kids will struggle to put them on by themselves. So you need parent time to be able to help them the mids seem to be a compromise that the kids can kind of get them on but still need parental support to do the laces up snug enough they've got the velcro strap that is able to restrict ankle range so the kids though for me to use something like that they need to have adequate ankle range so they need to be able to get to the ground but i don't mind if they've got a really early heel lift just simply from a otherwise their heel rubs in yeah, them yeah and and they might get blisters and if you get blisters from your new shoes your podiatrist sucks and you never <laughs> want to come back and see them again even though they told you to get a brand new pair of air force <laughs> yeah. custom, customized version uh, yeah wait, wait, at what point are, or what are the kind of like um indicators for you in a clinic when you were saying uh, i'd like to you know maybe put a, a molded insole with a carbon uh, based on it and inside a inside a shoe uh, what when are you starting to make that consideration yeah so if, if, where if, I, yeah. Yeah. sorry no no where, no i was gonna do it you go you go <laughs> um if i'm starting I, I could go numbers on a weight-bearing lunge test so i could go i usually find the kids at this number start having issues but um and it, it it is a little bit of a range on the way bearing lunge that the kids will start having a bit of knee pain. Uh, the, the minute the start the kids start getting pain is a big one for me. Or they say they can't keep up with their peers. Um, or they're starting to trip and fall a little bit more. So they're struggling, but they can still get their heel to the ground. I think that's the most important thing. The kids need to have the ability to get their heel to the ground. Uh, the the other one is around um, the, the and I've said it a couple of times the social factors. If a kid comes in and they're being teased, I regardless of what their range is, I will use something like that because it gets them down. So if they perceive that they are being treated negatively by their peers for their toe walking, I think as health professionals, we we. Um, can refer to social work, psychology, um, paediatrician to make sure these kids are socially doing okay. Mm. But something simple like that, we can actually play a do, role. Do, do you think that feeds it as well? I, um, I, like the, the, do you think that, that I know not not the prescription of something, but the 
the teasing of yeah. um um I, I mean my thing's gonna run it. Um <laughs> do you um find that the, the teasing of um the kids can be a factor in, in influencing the the toe walking? I think it's a bigger picture stuff. It's really just the toe walking. I, I think there might be additional support that is required for the child, both from uh, their mental health, um, for the, the family, and the toe walking is just kind of, it becomes a little bit of a Band-Aid, but it's one of the things that we can fix while we talk about the other stuff. Yeah. And so that's where it's really important. But I, I don't think sometimes as health professionals that deal with the physical stuff, don't think we talk enough about that with kids and, and really listen to them and and ask them, like, are you keeping up with your mates? Um, do you trip over more than your mates? Do your legs hurt and it stops you from playing? Um, if your legs hurt, do you ever cry? Does anyone, um, everyone say anything in your class about your walking that makes you sad or makes you not want to play with your friends? And so asking some of those key little questions, it changes the outcome that we always tend to, in our head, be thinking that outcomes are pain, ankle range, whereas yeah. outcomes need to be this big picture of what else is going on in that child's yeah, life. Yeah, and, and you treat an adult, you can always, who's got an injury, they're always whatever level, you know, it makes them, makes them feel down, sad, depressed, yeah. because because they're, and they're kind of, but they can probably express them a little bit more easily than, than kids can. So, yep. yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely a consideration. I need to consider more. Uh, so, and that, okay, that would kind of take me on to the conditions that you might, see adjacent to to idiopathic toe walking what i know i know this is a loaded question because i i know <laughs> that uh, i know that i know, Rob, I know you know what i'm like, gonna say <laughs> yeah but i don't know exactly but I, uh, I know that i know there's some 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 stuff behind it which is important for for us all to to be aware of so by definition idiopathic toe walking is we don't know why it happens now we know that um toe walking is related to neuromuscular conditions like cerebral palsy and Shakumari tooth disease, Duchenne's or any of the muscular dystrophies where the muscle changes. We know that <clears throat> toe walking also can occur in orthopedic concerns where there's an orthopedic, you can see it, and there is a, either a bone shortening or a muscle, muscle shortening that results in toe walking gait. But toe walking also occurs in developmental conditions like autism, um, like developmental coordination disorder, um, even some connective tissue disorders where the child will get up on their tiptoes and because of oh, gazillions of reasons, it might be related to their coordination ability or it's just easier to fall forward, of which you can do when you're up on your tiptoes. Those things aren't idiopathic toe walking. So kids mm -hmm. who have idiopathic toe walking, um, uh, they don't have any other condition known to cause or be related to the toe walking, which is why it's so complex to treat and why we often borrow our treatments from the other conditions. So as we're learning more about it, we potentially see some have a little bit more tone, but not enough tone to be diagnosed with CP. Some kids have a few interesting um, social or um, sensory quirks, but not enough 
to be diagnosed on the spectrum. Or some might have a few develop uh, a few coordination challenges, but not enough to be diagnosed with DCD. So these kids then have all of. <laughs> is it idiopathic to walking really at the end of the day? Well, when... is that is that that's not your it's not your next research question, is it? Well, well, I think more and more, look, we can't give everyone a diagnosis because all of us are on the spectrum of something, but there has to be a cut point where you go, hey, these kids have this, and mm -hmm. so we know what therapy we provide them for this condition. Yeah. And one of our biggest challenges with idiopathic toe walking is they don't have enough of each one of those things mm -hmm. to make that cut point. Yeah. So this is where I think we're getting closer. Um, we've got a number of projects um, that are, that are, are looking at um, sensory abilities. We've got kids in a functional MRI at the moment where we're looking at decision making and we, we're uh, looking at kids with idiopathic toe walking. We're about to also start recruiting kids with autism um, and kids with cerebral palsy to see what are the similarities and differences. Uh, we've also done some work on um, some sensory stuff because some kids sometimes have sensory challenges with idiopathic toe walking, but not all kids. So we can't treat them all the same and say that all of them have these challenges. Yeah, that's right. A good answer, but it shows you how complex <laughs> and not straightforward that the the, the, the the idiopathic toe walking inside itself is. If you can actually get it down to that, it's not even straightforward. That's probably even more complex than at least yeah. having something else to lean on which maybe can inform your treatment a little bit more clearly. Yeah. Um, it becomes really challenging because often as health professionals, when, we, when we're starting out, we want algorithms. We want, yeah. hey, this person comes with this, who has this, so I treat them with this. And the challenge more yeah. and more with um, idiopathic toe walking in particular is you kind of have a treat. My analogy is a treatment bucket. And you've got a bucket full of things. And sometimes you pull out of that bucket for some patients this. Sometimes your skill set mightn't be in the bucket. They might need serial casting. Surgery actually might be the right thing for the family, um, mm -hmm. in which case off to an orthopedic surgeon. Um, sometimes they might need AFOs. They might need that bigger. Sometimes an SMO might be required over and above a carbon fibre plate or a shoe, sometimes they just might need reassurance that, you know yeah. what, you've got yeah. ankle range, you just look like you're going to toe walk till you're 20. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, do you typically, I've got too many questions to ask now, sorry, <laughs> uh, that are not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, you, do you typically have a certain set time that you follow them up? Um, like, do you tend mm. to follow most of them up just to keep an eye, even if you're not actually have putting a treatment in place just saying look for a bit of reassurance come back in three six months and we'll just see what's happening just to keep an eye on things and then kind yeah. of just go through it again the kind of questions I, and the tests and yeah I do I do when I'm getting to know them mainly because I just until I really, really am comfortable that they've got ITW. So we've had a couple of times where we've tested their reflexes, made sure there's nothing else hinky it's not deteriorating it's actually staying the same um i will um tend to see them every six months for maybe 
two or three times. Mm -hmm. And if I'm getting fairly similar measures and we've got them through a growth spurt, so also depend on the age, if we've got a bit of a growth spurt in there, Mm -hmm. if they've managed a growth spurt with pretty okay range, pretty active, they're just loving life, get to a point where you kind of go, hey, guys, you know where I am, come back and see me if things change. I I think we can over-medicalise the spectrum of normal. And I think for some kids, this is a spectrum of normal that we don't all look the same. (laughs) It's it's an interesting concept that you touched on before, and it's pretty prevalent in our whole profession that uh, we we do look for that algorithm for pretty much like this condition needs that and that it's not just in 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 idiopathic to walk and it's literally like which is maybe why it makes it frighten people a little bit because it's one of that yeah 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 exactly you've got to get that bucket got to start rifling through the bucket to see what's in there um but um yeah that, that that's really interesting i'm conscious that my Zoom keeps going to run out, but it should it should be on. A, it should just go on. But if it if it jumps off, then I'll I'll say come oh. back in. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, um, it it's interesting. We'll see how we go. I'll, I'll start it, and if we need to come back in, we did some research where we talked to parents about what they wanted to know when they came to see a health professional for treatment, and they categorically told us that they wanted to know that there was lots, but where their child fitted in the lots because what they hated was turning up to the next um, clinician and the next clinician said, oh, we should do X, Y, or Z. And it's the first I'd ever heard of it. And it's a really tricky one then when you've got a parent in front of you where you're reassuring and you say, hey, look, um, if you read about this condition, one of the things that parents have told us when we've done some quality uh, qualitative research with them, and we published it in uh, BMJ Open, so it's an open access, anyone can read it, on what they, what they wanted health professionals to know about their journey. And one of the things that they, they generally said is they liked knowing the whole story and where they fit in that story or that spectrum of, of, of treatments because what they hated was turning up to another health professional and being informed about something that they'd never heard of before. And it's a hard one to gauge in clinical practice because you might be sitting there with a parent who you're saying, hey, don't worry about it. Things actually look okay. Come back and see me in six to 12 months versus um, you sit there and go, hey, look, there's lots of treatments that you may read about, everything from surgery, and I don't think your child is anywhere near needing anything like that, but some kids do, and so when you read about things online, you might hear that. Um, Right down to do nothing, and that's kind of where I think you're sitting at the moment, that by doing nothing, we're also monitoring it. I like to call it supervised neglect as in we're supervising, not doing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, We also then have all these spectrum of treatments and each of those treatments have different um, success. So serial casting, the only thing serial casting looks like it does, it's a short time treatment to elongate the muscle. You still have hard work after that, 
to train movement differently. And so you can't just stop with that. It will always have a follow-on treatment. And so when you educate them to why this one goes with this thing, and I often, because as a podiatrist, like I tend to work in the um, the the, uh, the the increasing exercise or doing something that, that changes their movement patterns and also say, hey, look, there's foot orthoses, SMOs, AFOs. Each of them have their strengths and each of them have their, their challenges. Now, for some kids, you have to go to an AFO. And, and for some services, there's an algorithm. They go serial casting, AFOs, stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you're working truly in person-centered care, now that might work for some and work really, really well. They might be pushing out of a boot. They might be pushing out of their carbon fiber plates. They might be too strong or not not strong enough in their anteriors to be able to manage anything yeah. else. They, they kind of have to be in an AFO. But yes, they struggle to go up and down steps. They struggle to keep up with their peers. They struggle to learn to jump. They struggle to get off the floor. So what's the payoffs versus the benefit that they yeah. will get from and, these? And that's sometimes devices. what I struggle with having someone who's tool walking in and sticking them in a solid AFO and trying to think, can they move better or, yeah. or as quickly? I would his wouldn't hesitate to probably say that it would be just as hard to to run in an AFO that was solid uh, as it would to, uh, to to perhaps run on your on your toes. Like and sometimes they need that though. Like that that can also be a motor training exercise where you're using the AFO as a passive motor intervention. Mm-hmm. So you stick it. They have to move differently. You are yeah. forcing them to learn a new movement pattern, which may be really important. And so. This is that challenge with algorithmic care that you're not yeah. thinking about all the benefits and the challenges that whatever you're prescribing is going to create for the child and family. Yeah. Um, I think uh, you guys probably do it far better than we do. You can hide them under trousers. Yeah. We struggle to hide them under shorts. Yeah. So you, you've also got those AFOs up in North Queensland are just mm-hmm. a nightmare. Whereas we could probably get away with them a little bit more down here in Victoria, and it is the, one of the preferred treatments um, that that is often performed after serial casting. So, letting yeah. parents know there's all of these things mm-hmm. helps make them feel quite empowered to say, "Hey, I want that." Okay, well, here's where you go. Versus, yeah. I know I don't want that. Okay, well, what can we yeah. kind of shuffle down this end to reduce that, that 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 kind of mindset of kind of introducing the options to them to see where they're at with their with, with where they are and their journey to to see what what intervention they may be willing to accept and that might allow you to kind of make your decision a little bit more more easily uh, or at least kind of have it in ready to go should it should it progress surgery is and i was quite i i wholeheartedly admit i used to be quite rigid in my thinking that we needed to do everything we could do to avoid surgery with these kids it's actually best option for some kids and some families Mm -hmm. it it is when you um, say families do you mean because of like the effect that's having on them like a detrimental effect and that's kind of like 
And it's a long journey to get over toe walking with serial casting and AFOs and and surgery tends to be a little, I know it's a higher risk, Mm -hmm. but it can also be sometimes a little bit quicker. It depowers a muscle very quickly. I find that it's too, the, the, the orthopedics maybe not looking to, to, to offer that until it's uh, uh, yeah. right, like, you know, till they're in their yeah. teens and like kind of right at the um, end. Of, or... Depends. Some, some, where, where we've got heel not mating the ground, you've really got two options. You can serial cast them or you can do surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we work with some amazing orthopedic surgeons, really person centered family centered and some will offer hey look we can we can do either one which one do you want to do um mm-hmm. some are probably a little bit more pro surgery than others some are a yeah. little bit more pro serial casting yeah, than others a, yeah that's an interesting view like because i sometimes get baffled by like i don't always understand the decision making process of of um, surgeons it's not which craft it's not yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a confusing one um yep. I, so we've probably covered like the the role of, of orthosis and treatment in a quite a nice way i think because we've talked about how it's patient-centered and 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 that kind of i like the the idea of just kind of saying this is where we're at and this is what we can offer and you know let them make that decision based on where they are especially with idiopathic flow walking where there's no easy easy kind of route to take um so i guess i would i did want to kind of ask you like what interventions have you seen i've written good and bad but we kind of talked about the good so have you seen kind of <laughs> anything that yeah one-offs or anything that just wrote that stuck out that you can there's a bit of a, a highlight that you've seen over time or you've tried yourself it was like well we did that in the past because we've all kind of gone yeah. on that journey where we've done stuff and it's like oh, i did that in the past and i've changed since then and yep. hence like i've seen the, the, the boots with the heel retaining strap i mentioned earlier yep. and it's, uh, you know, <laughs> i haven't i haven't seen that one <laughs> but i i guess i oh, i've used bring the heel up to the ground so where we use a, a heel raise and we lift it up and i think for some kids I still might use it, but I'd probably use it less. So I find that um, if I'm going to, if I've really got to bring the ground up to the foot, then there's not enough ankle range there. Um, I could often never bring the ground up enough for kids who are, are super tight. And so the intervention, a little bit different. I've used taping, I've used kinesio tape, I've used whole body vibration. Uh, I can shake it out of them for a good 10 yeah. minutes. And then they all start tie walking again. Um, we've had some success with a very small number of kids in sensory type insoles, but not blanket success. And this again comes with this bucket of yeah. things. Um, I think I, I'm challenged with prism lenses, and I'm glad some of the um, colleges are bringing out statements around the use of prism lenses for gait disorders mm-hmm. um, that the um, they disrupt gait enough while you're wearing them, but yeah. you kind of need your sight. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say prism like... lenses is, is a new one on me. So I, oh, I, yeah. I, oh, don't, don't, yeah. <laughs> Let's just make a very clear statement. Not great. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so That's fine. I will look it up. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just write that down and not look up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's, um, it is, it is popping up in the space at, at times of, of disrupting the vision field enough. Mm-hmm. And, and there is some research going in on in Europe around disrupting vision 
um, to create tone and gate change. And it makes sense. If you change the floor service and change what you see, you're going to change your gate. Challenge is the the dose at which you'd have to do that to permanently change gate. We don't know that. Yeah. And so you can't go around disrupting people all the yeah. time because you wouldn't have a life. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that, I have to look into that a little more myself. <laughs> um, I, and I know you've got another meeting, so I yeah. have one question left, which is yeah. just kind of where, what, what are you up to with research now? Where are you going next? Yeah. A um, couple of directions. I've got an amazing PhD student at the moment who's working on functional MRI and actually understanding how kids who toe walk from all different reasons make sensory decisions and how those decisions actually correlate with um, some of the ready-made tools. So um, executive functioning tools and sensory processing type tools or questionnaires, because if we can understand how those tools map to decisions, we may be able to profile these kids a lot better, which means profiling means better targeted care, means that we can actually conduct treatment trials with a homogeneous or a similar group of kids. And that's where I think we often fail with our treatment trials for kids who have idiopathic toe walking is we take all of them and then we use the same treatment for all of them and we showed little effect, whereas if we profiled them better, we might see some treatments map to some children better or some children with some features better. So, again, that spectrum type thing. We're um, working on clinician-based outcome measures that matter to parents. So we know that gate labs are the gold standard of everything, but not all of us have them. And in clinical practice, in your private practice, what data do we collect that's greater than just an ankle range and what do parents actually value? Yeah. What are the things that, that we ask? So we've got a paper under review, fingers crossed, at the moment that has a suite of, of outcome measures that parents have also told us are important. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's kind of a, a range of things that every clinician could do. And the next kind of layer to that is parents have also told us their um their intent or their um, willingness to be taught some of those measures. So if we can teach some of those measures to parents, that whole monitoring, ongoing monitoring thing, we could trial in a group of fairly healthy kids, so idiopathic toe walking, which means we have translation to our neuromuscular kids who the stakes are higher for their monitoring. Can we, without putting too much burden on parents, is there a suites of things that are super important to know that parents could do once every three months, once every six months? So the magic of being a health professional with our super measury sort of stuff, can we actually do one or two of those things and give that to a parent so they can contact and we or we touch base, we ring them up and say, hey, what's... What's the mm. go? And they mm. tell us, hey, that measure means we need to see you versus, hey, you're doing an amazing job. Mm -hmm. Keep doing and reduce the burden on some of our kids and our families and our health services. Um, the last is we're doing some stuff and it's a little bit external to idiopathic toe walking, but it's in all kids' lower limb conditions and that's some pain research. And that's around conditions that relate to kids' 
lower limb pain and developing some guidelines, unfortunately algorithmic care, um, some guidelines, but also how families want us to speak about lower limb conditions, how they want us as health professionals to speak about them, what language helps, what language doesn't help, how we can um, use our words as, as healers instead of things that make parents feel pretty awful about what's going on with their kids. And so we've got a few a few projects that are, are kind of um, dancing around some of the psychosocial stuff with kids at the moment. Oh, you're busy, very busy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got an army of amazing health professionals and researchers and PhD students. Oh, okay. That, um, so you're, support you're good at me. delegating, top delegator. Oh, apparently. <laughs> well, Kylie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to do a follow up uh, in not so distant future so we can see uh, how everything's going with research so we can keep ourselves up to date. And uh, I think that has been super informative for me personally. This is what I, I do like about doing a podcast is basically get like to learn a lot from from uh, people that know loads. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't see my face. Uh, I know, I was going to say, no one's going to see that. When I do I'll do a little screenshot to say you came on and I'll, I'll, I'll find that, that, <laughs> that expression. <laughs> oh, Doug, you're a legend. I'm going to have to go. Thank you so much. That was lots of fun. Cool. Thanks, Kylie.